Bible there. Just turn quickly with me, 1 John chapter 3, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. 1 John 3, <coughs> pardon me, verse 1. 1 John 3, 1. It says this. It says, See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children. And that is what we are. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know him. See how very much our Father loves us. We can just go back. See how very much our Father loves us. For he, think about this, he, speaking of God, he calls you his child. God calls you his child. Isn't that a beautiful thing? God, the creator of the universe, the one who spoke everything into being, the one whose wisdom is unfathomable, who lives outside the realm of our intelligence and our intellect, who, who, who's not bound by time and space. He calls you his children. He calls you his child. We've been talking, we started last week, excuse me, to look at God's father heart, how God sees us, and in turn how we see God. Because we have many, many images of God. A part of the reason being we have so messed up fatherhood and motherhood. We've so messed it up down here on planet Earth by rejecting God's ways, rejecting who God is, and thinking that we can do a better job. You know, I love a lot of things, don't you? I mean, I love chocolate mint biscuits. Who doesn't love chocolate mint biscuits, by the way? If you don't, I don't know if you fit in with the rest of us. Chocolate mint biscuits. I love chocolate mint biscuits. They're fantastic. They're fantastic. They, they, they make my... T- the taste buds on my tongue look like that little animal there. I like to move. It's dancing around because I love chocolate mint, the flavour of chocolate mint, you know? I love rugby league. I love it. I love watching the game. I love playing sport. I love the energy I feel, the adrenaline rush, the movement of my body, how I feel afterwards, sweating and hot and out of breath. I love it. At the same time, I love my wife and my kids. At the same time, I'll stand here and worship a song and I'll say, I love God. I'll use the same word to say all these different things. See, I think love, the word gets thrown around, doesn't it? Bandied around so often that really it's been watered down. It's kind of lost a lot of the potency of what it means when we say we love something. It's like the word miracle. You know, people, people uh, you know, will, will, will call anything a miracle these days. You know, a, a beautiful sunset is a miracle. And on one hand, I guess you could say it's a miracle, but to me a miracle is when God parts the oceans and lets a whole nation of people walk through on dry land. That's a miracle. You know? A sunrise is just part of the natural order and process that God put into place. The sun comes up, goes down, depending on where the water is, the light refracts and so on, and gives you different colours. But a real miracle is when somebody's born with no eyes in their head and God, at 32 years of age, puts eyes in the sockets. That's a miracle. 
When God goes outside the realm of natural order and does something, that's a miracle. But we can really water that down. We water the word down because of the way we throw it about all the time. Oh, that, you know, when, when the Cowboys won the grand final a couple of years ago and scored on the Hooter, and then Jonathan Thurston got a field goal, everyone said it was a miracle comeback. That was just a really, really good comeback. It wasn't a miracle. It was just really, really good. But we throw these words around. And we throw around the word love, I guess, in the same way. We, we, we love God and, and we communicate the same thing that we feel uh, towards God as what we feel towards fishing. Words can really lose their power and lose their passion. <laughs> but what does it mean? See how very much our Father loves us. I mean, does that mean that God loves you like I love fishing? Is that what it means? Does it mean that God loves you like I love football or playing sport? Or does it mean that God loves you like I love my wife and my kids? The reality is, the truth of it is, none of those express it near enough. Because the way God loves you is way more passionately and way more intensely than even I can give love to my kids and to my wife. That's that's. Love on a human level. That's the way I understand love and the passion that I have. Yet the Bible paints this picture of God loving us with so much more passion than what you could give. Think about the person you love the most here on planet Earth and the love which you feel in their heart towards them in comparison to the love that the Father has for us is like hatred. That's what Jesus meant when he said, unless you hate father and mother and brother and so on, you can't be my disciple. He wasn't saying hate people. What he was saying was the love and the passion, the commitment you have to me has to be so strong and so full that by comparison, all other loves are down here. That's the kind of love that God has for us. See how very much our Father loves us. He calls us his children. That's the love of God. The passionate, intense love that God has for us. The nearest thing that we have to understand that on a human level is, of course, the love of a parent to a child. But as I've just said, that can get distorted over time. But you know what, I reckon no matter where we are right now in terms of how we understand parents and being and, and love for children, I'll guarantee you this, the day you looked at that child, the day you looked at that child when that child first came out, think about that. I mean, as time goes on, kids do things, and sometimes they do good, they may do bad, they listen, they don't. <coughs> and as time goes on, we weary, and we get tired, and we get frustrated. And we get over things, and that love kind of wanes and dissipates, that feeling, that sense of love, that feeling of, of love. And by the time they're older, there's, there could be 20 years of history that some of it we process, some of it because of our own hurt and our own dysfunction, we've been unable to process, navigate our way through. And so we're sitting here 20 years down the track looking at this child, going, yes, I love you, but it's different than way back then. It's almost like the purity of it, the clarity of it's been shaded through different things. It's just normal. It's the way it happens with us humans because we're not divine. We're human. We're finite. We see and we think and we process life through a finite lens, not an infinite lens. But the picture that the Bible paints is that first day when you first saw them. I remember when I first saw my kids, each of my kids, I can remember seeing them and being overwhelmed 
absolutely overwhelmed with the thought that, you know, how can, first of all, how can I be a parent? You know, I remember having my second child and my big question was this, how can I, how can I have the same passionate love for two of you that I've got for, for one? It's not possible. And that was a fear of mine leading up to the birth of Jonathan was, I know how much I love this child, Caleb. There's no way that I've got anything left in my love bucket to give to him. And if I do, it's not going to be as much as I give to him. Or, and I'm thinking, well, what's going to have to happen is maybe I've got to take 50% of my love bucket for Caleb out and put it in Johnny so they've both got 50% of my love. This is the picture that I'm thinking in my head. Then, of course, what happens when third and fourth? By the time Chloe comes along, you're each only getting 25% of my love. Because I've only got 100% to give and there's four of you, it's 25% each. You've only got 25% of my love in the love bucket. (laughs) But God has that same passionate, intense love for each of us. Go right back to that very first day. When, When that child comes out and we look at that baby, we look at that child. And there's no history to go on. There's no disappointments. There's no hurts. There's no nothing. And we look at that child and we are full of love, unconditional love. That child hasn't done a single thing to earn love from you. Hasn't done anything. If anything, it's been annoying from the minute it came into planet Earth because it's done nothing but whinge, screaming, yelling. It's dirty. It's not even clean. They don't even come out dressed properly. They don't walk out and look you in the eye and go, hello, how can I help you? What would you like me to do? Nothing like that. They just scream and they're messy and gooey and they come out and they're... And then right away from the start, you know your life is never going to be the same. Do you think that the nurse will just take them away and clean them up and give them back? But when they come back, they still look wrinkly. Like Remember the old dog, the Rolo the dog in the toilet paper commercials? Remember that dog and he had all the rolls of skin and he used to walk around with a toilet roll? How many babies look like that? They've just got heaps of rolls. Jordan. (laughs) But you know what? The love that you have for that child when it comes out, it's not based on how the child looks because they don't look good. They look gross. Let's be real. Newborn babies look gross. But they're beautiful the same time. That newborn baby's done nothing to earn your love, but you love it anyway. It's also done nothing to destroy that love, although, like I just said, they start pretty early trying to chip away at it. And as they get older, they find other ways to chip away at it. But you look at that child and you see incredible potential, don't you? It's just born. It's literally, I don't know about you, when my kids have just come out the womb, we're still cutting the cord and I've already got their next 40 years mapped out. I know exactly what they're going to do, what they're going to be like, how wonderful they're going to be, how successful they're going to be, how they're going to shake the world for the kingdom of God. I've already worked it all out in my head. The minute they came out and I saw them, I knew that they're going to change the world. They're going to be the best human being planet Earth has ever seen. And in generations to come, they're going to be reading about my kids in books. Other parents all around the world are going to be going, why can't you be like Jordan? They're going to be looking at their little girls going, if only you were Chloe. Because that's how good, how great, successful my kids were going to be. That's what I thought. At that moment, when that child comes out. And you know, that's how God sees each and every one of us all the time. That's how God sees you. 
He didn't just see you a certain way in the beginning and then as you went on in life and you made mistakes and you did things and you kicked and screamed and fussed and turned away. He didn't at some point go, right, I'm looking at you now at 45 years of age, but you just don't look as good as you did to me when I first gave birth to you. God doesn't look at us like that. You know, 45 years of age, I mean, to me, you're hot. Let let me make that very clear before I move on. Matter of fact, I'm going to pick another example. Okay. Leslie, God doesn't look at you down the track and go, but I know what you've done. I know your history. I know your performance. I know what it's been like. And because of that, Leslie, I just want you to know that way back here, I had so much hope for you and passion for you, but over the years, I just want you, I still love you, but I just want you to know, don't expect from my heart to you what I gave you back then. Don't expect me to feel the same about you now as I did way back then. Because times have changed. Things have moved on and you've done some stuff. You've done some stuff. Who's done some stuff? Eh? I've done some stuff. Before I met Jesus, I did some stuff. Eh? A lot of us did some stuff. Hey, let me break some molds too. Since I've met Jesus, who's done some stuff? I've still done some stuff. We are a mix of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Every one of us. Every one of us. We got good, we got bad, we got ugly. Yet, see how very much our Father loves us. He calls you his child. The God of the universe doesn't even have to speak to you. That's the truth. The divine, uncreated being doesn't even have to think about you. He doesn't have to look at you. He doesn't have to listen to a word you say. He is not obligated to do anything for you. He was not obligated to walk into a hospital room and touch Val with cancer and take it out of her body. He was not obligated to do that. He didn't have to do that. You know why? We don't hold God in the palm of our hands. He holds us. God's not a puppet on strings. He doesn't have to. He cannot be and will not be controlled by us. He's God. We've got to understand the infinite greatness of God. That's God. He's not obligated, but he chooses to look down and say, you know what, Leslie, I'm going to call you my child. Xavier, I'm going to call you my child. Bevan, I'm going to call you my child. You know? Jenny, I'm going to call you my child. I don't have to do that. I want you to know this. I don't have to do that. But I'm looking at you and I'm so excited about your life, exactly excited, as excited today as I was the day you were born. The potential I see in you is the same as I saw the day you were born. Hadn't changed. The love that I had that day, the way that I called everybody, I got on Twitter and Facebook and put pictures and contacted everybody on social media to say, come on, you can't believe it. This little girl's been born. She's coming to the world. That passion, that energy that I have for you hasn't dissipated at all. That's still the way I see you today. What an awesome picture of God. Deep down in our hearts, how many of us actually believe that? That's the opposite of putting a hand up, by the way. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard to get our minds around that. It's hard for us to grasp that and think that that could possibly be true. Yet the Bible tells us, that God calls us his children. <laughs> you know, there's a group of people that really, really struggled with this. In Luke chapter 15, you would know the story of the prodigal son. Let's go there. In Luke chapter 15. 
Story of the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. It starts like this. It says, tax collectors and other notorious sinners. So isn't that interesting? It's not, you're not just a sinner. There's another class of sinners called notorious. Okay? Who was just, a sin- Who was just an ordinary sinner here before they got saved? Who was an ordinary sinner? <laughs> Bar humbug to you. I was, an, I was a notorious sinner. I was in the gang of notorious sinners. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus. They came to hear him. These guys came to listen. They wanted to hear what he had to say. They wanted to be around him. They wanted to spend time with him. There was something about that man. There was something about the person of Jesus, God in flesh. There was something about him that these dysfunctional, ugly, wounded, hurt, dirty, sinning people felt comfortable to be with him. And not only did they feel comfortable, they wanted to. They wanted to be with him. And you know what? He wanted to be with them. I mean, if Jesus came right now to town, would he, A, want to come up here and stand in this place and preach a wonderful, anointed, powerful message to Arise Church, or would he go down to the middle of town, find the darkest, dungiest, dirtiest pub or corner where people are doing the worst, disgusting, rotten things, and would he go into those people and say, I'd rather talk to them? Not because I don't love you, but because hopefully you understand these people don't. They don't get it. And so Jesus came and he spent time with these people. And it says this, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. Verse 2, this made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Verse 3, so Jesus told them this story. So that's the background of what we're about to look at. And from that point on, Jesus tells three stories. He's, he, he tells the parable of the lost sheep. And he goes, a man had sheep. And one of the sheep went missing. And so he left the 99 sheep there to chase after and to find the one sheep. He went out searching, looking everywhere for that sheep. And when he found that sheep, he brought it back into the fold. And he was happy. He was excited. He was pumped. Now these people here, these religious leaders, these Pharisees, they're sitting there and they're understanding that. Because why? Because sheep have value. Sheep actually have value. I get it. You're missing one. That's economy. That's livelihood. So of course you would, you would go and you would find that sheep because that sheep has value. And when you find it, yeah, you'd be excited about that. It's a good thing. And then after establishing that, he moves on. He says, I'll tell you another story about a widow who lost some money. And the amount of money that she lost was a week's worth of wages. That's what it it translates to today, a whole week's wages. She lost it, and she's a widow. And so she sweeps the house and looks under the floorboards and moves the carpet, pulls the fridge out, looks behind it, and she finally finds this money. And when she finds the money, she's so excited, she calls her friends together and says, celebrate with me, I found this money, found this good. And these religious leaders are there listening to this story going, yep, so what? We get it. That money, it's a week's worth of money. You don't just throw that out. Who's ever thrown money out? Just looked at a week's worth of wages and thought, it doesn't really matter, I'll throw it. Who's never been paid for a week? (laughs) We just had this conversation. (coughs) So the Pharisees and religious leaders are there going, yep, we get it. You lose a sheep, it's valuable. A sheep has value. You go and find it and you bring it in. When you bring it in, yep, you're chuffed, you're excited. I get it. You lose a week's worth of wages and you go out there and you sweep your house, you do whatever you've got to do to find it and when you find it, you get excited, you get pumped. I get it. Why? Because a week's worth of wages, that's a bit of value. 
And then it says this. To illustrate the point further in verse 11, to illustrate the point further, Jesus then told them this story. To illustrate the point further, Jesus goes on and says, now I'm going to tell you another story. I'm going to tell you a story about a father. He's got a couple of kids. The youngest kid comes to him one day and says, Dad, I want my inheritance now. I don't want to wait till you're dead. I want it now. And so the father divvies up the inheritance to the kids, gives it to them. Then the young kid packs up his bag and says, See you, Dad, I'm out of here. This farm life's not for me. And he takes off. And the Bible says that he goes and he wastes all of his inheritance. <laughs> Wild living. All these things that, that are what we would term sinful. Drugs, alcohol, parties, out there doing whatever he wants, living a life of absolutely no restraint. Whatever he feels like doing, he's going to do it because that's really living. I don't want to live here with you, Dad, under your rules, your constraints. I want to get out there and I'm going to take my chances and I'll live life to the full. That's what people think. I'm going to live it to the full. Living life to the full means doing whatever I want. No boundaries, no limitations. That's never worked for anybody. But this boy, he knows more than his dad. Anyone ever experienced that? Children knowing more than their parents? Hey, I was a kid and I knew more than my parents. So I thought. Life has a way of biting you on the bottom, doesn't it? Just when you think you got it all figured out. You walk around the corner and, didn't see that coming. And so this boy goes and he spends all his money. And the Bible says that he finds himself working for some guy in a distant country, feeding the pigs, and he's looking at the food, he's slopping out to the pigs, and he goes, you know what? I am so hungry. I would, I'd love to mung away on this stuff. I'd just love to put this food in my mouth. That's how hungry I am. I want to eat the pig food. And in that moment he says, I'm, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go home to my father, and I'm going to say to my father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I've messed up so badly, so badly. Dad, you've got no idea the things I've done. And I'm probably going to be too embarrassed to tell you, Dad. Probably going to take a long time for me to open up and actually share with you how bad I've been. And I don't expect you to embrace me and take me back in. That's, I'm smart enough to know that's not going to happen. But take me on as a hired servant because I know how, you'll, I know how you treat your servants. You treat your servants okay. So I'll come back as a hired servant. I want you to imagine these Jewish religious leaders are there. They're hearing about a lost sheep and they're going, that's got value, this makes sense. They're hearing about a lost coin, that's got value, this makes sense. Then they're hearing about a rebellious young boy. And they're going, hang on a second. This story makes no sense. (laughs) What father in his right mind would give that inheritance to that boy. You see, according to the culture of the day, it was not illegal for the younger son to ask for his inheritance early. It was not illegal, but it was culturally irresponsible to do it. It was looked down upon, you know? It wasn't something that, that, that was common because it was, it was a bad thing to do within the eyes of the culture. And for the father to say, yes, what a disgraceful father. Only a bad father would do that. A good father would go and call your uncles and your relatives and sit that boy down in a room and tell him to wake up to himself and come to his senses because you've got a good ear. Don't disrespect your father like that. Don't bring shame and disgrace to your father like that. 
A good father would call the rabbi and the rabbi would sit him down and he would grab the word of God and he would open it up and he would say, let me tell you, honour thy father and thy mother. It's the first command with a promise. He would break out the scriptures and tell him why he had to stay, why he couldn't do what he was doing. But this father says, okay, and then gives him the inheritance. And to every Jewish man in that crowd, they're looking at that father going, this father's a disgrace. This father is a disgrace. No good father would do that. So Jesus is changing the way they view God. You see, God understands the value of a sheep. God understands the value of a coin. But does a dirty, rotten, rebellious, sinful child have any value? Hang on, hang on a second. We were with you, Jesus. We followed you. We got it. Okay, We just want you to know we got it. We understand the value of the sheep. We understand that economy, livelihood, uh, we get it. Now, this woman, we understand the value of that coin because it's a, a week's wages. You can do a lot with that. We get it. But are you trying to tell us that this rebellious human being has value? Is that what you're trying to say to us, Jesus? And Jesus says, that's exactly what I'm trying to say to you. That's exactly what I'm trying to say to you. When this boy who had done everything that he should not have done and wasted everything that was given to him by the Father, turned around and started that journey home. doesn't matter which version of the Bible you read, it'll paint the picture that the Father was waiting. It says, when he saw the Son coming home, He got up and he ran towards the boy. Do you know how uncultured and disrespectful it is for a Jewish man to run in the day? You're telling me that this father in this story threw away his reputation, didn't care about how the child made him look, ran in his robes down a street, dusty, dirty street, didn't care about the rehearsal that the young boy had done. Now, when I get there, here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say I've done. We're like that, aren't we, sometimes? We, we, we mess up, we do things wrong, and we, we've, we've rehearsed it. We know exactly what we have to do to become right with God again, don't we? We know exactly how many prayers we've got to pray. We know exactly how much pain we've got to put ourselves through. In the old days, they used to you know, self-flatulate, and they'd whip themselves and, and, and all kinds of things in order to get yourself into the love of God. You've got to perform. You've got to do things in order to get yourself into that place where God actually respects you, loves you, wants to be with you, where he wants to be your father again. Let me tell you something. I'm a father to my kids, whether they're good or bad. The love I have for my kids is not performance-based. It doesn't matter. They can't perform their way into my love, and they're certainly not going to perform their way out of it. See, all these religious leaders are sitting there going, this is how you please God. You've got to dot your I's, cross your T's, you've got to do all this stuff. We're the guardians of the galaxy. And you guys are not doing the right thing out there. God loves us because we're doing all this right stuff. And Jesus comes along and he shares a story. And he says, you know what? This father picked up his robe and he ran down the road to the child. He didn't even let the child give out his rehearsed speech. He just slapped his arms around him and said, son, it's so good to see you. 
Go and get a robe and put it back on him. Go and get a ring which signifies he's my son. He's part of my family. Go and get the ring, slap it on him, get something for his feet, whack it on, go and grab the biggest, fattest piece of meat, cattle, cow, sheep, whatever, goat, and kill it, and we're going to have a party tonight because my son who was lost is now found. He's saying this is what the love of God is like for humanity. This is the love of the Father for all of us. See, some of us have come home, some of us aren't home yet. Some of us have made it back to the farm and we've got the robe on and the ring on, but some of us haven't. Some of us are like the older brother. We've, we feel like we've never left, but the truth is the older brother left a long time ago. He comes along when he hears the party, the celebration, and listen to what he says to the father. He says, didn't I obey everything you said? Didn't I dot every I, cross every T? Didn't I do everything that you wanted? In other words, this kid here disobeyed everything you wanted, went out there, took his chances, brought shame to you. I have brought glory to you. I've done nothing wrong. I've been perfect. But you never threw a party for me. You see, one boy's thinking, well, look, I've done all these bad things, so I can't come back home now because I'm too bad. The other one's going, I I should be entitled to everything because I've been really good. You're not a child of God because you've been really bad or because you're really good. You're a child because God himself decided you were. He gave birth to you. He created you. It's not a performance-based thing. We live in a performance-based society. Tick all the boxes, do everything right, and you're in. You're into university. You're in the team. You're on the side. You're in the car. You're in the gang. You're in the group. Do everything wrong. You're out of university. You're out of the test. You're out of the class. You're out of the car. You're out of the team. You're out of whatever. If you don't perform. When we first moved to Bundaberg years and years ago, after we got married, we went up there, and I remember going down to the touch football fields because I wanted to pick up a game because I'm a good touch player and so on. and So I went down there. Nobody knew me. And I walked around all night trying to get a game. And everyone sort of looked at you like, oh, no, we're right, mate. We don't need you. We're good. We're good. Finally, this guy, this older gentleman comes up to me. He goes, oh, do you want a game? Come and have a run with us. And so I went out there and I jumped on the field. And guess what? Bang, 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 bang. Try, scores. Set up. Bang, 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 bang. Geez, fast. You can run. You can step. You can the end of that night, I've got just about everybody come up to me going, oh, look, do you want to come and play for our team? We'll sign up. Do you want to play for our team? Do you want to come play for our team? That's a great feeling to have everyone doing that, but it's very shallow at the same time. Because you don't want me. You just want what I can do. My gifts, my, my abilities, my talent. That's all you want. You're not interested in me. It's only because I performed really well. So now you want to know me and have me because you performed really, really well. And we live in a world like that. But God the Father looks down upon us and he says, you know what, your performance doesn't change the way I see you. It doesn't shape my love for you. It doesn't shake the passion I have for you. It doesn't shake the potential I see in you. It doesn't shake the the belief I have in you. It doesn't shake the plan that I have for you. And I formed you and fashioned you in your mother's womb. You didn't do something. I went, right, that's it. That plan is now out the window. It's gone. Your real ministry is gone. Now I'm just going to give you your shadow ministry like Pete was talking about. Now it's all about shadows. Now you can live the rest of your life in the shadow of what could have been because you really screwed up this time. You really messed up this time. God's not like that. Our Heavenly Father is not like that. He never has been. He loves us with an unending love. Now here's the problem. Because we have no human framework for the kind of love God has for us, we adopt a circumstantial situation whereby we make judgments 
based on our circumstances, whether God loves us or not. It works like this. When things are going really well for us, we take that as a sign that God's happy with me, therefore he's accepting of me. When things are going really well, I take that as a sign that God's loving me right now. He's accepting me. He's happy with me. I can approach him with boldness now. And so because of the circumstances, because of what's going on around me. And when things are going bad, then that's a sign that God's not so happy. Therefore, he must be rejecting me right now. When I get sick, God must be rejecting me right now. I must have done something wrong. When I run out of money or when the tire blows up on the car, it must be a sign from God that he's just not happy with me. He doesn't like me. And our ability to accept that love is all based on circumstance. If you want to build your image of God on circumstance, you will never, ever get a firm foundation in your faith. You won't do it. Because your circumstances change up, down, up, down, up, down. The foundation of our faith, the foundation of what we believe, is, is, is what does God say about you? What does God say about you? How does God see you? He sees you as a child. He loves you unconditionally, passionately. There's nothing you can do to make him hate you. Nothing you can do to get him to drop the love that he has for you. You see, the image of God, this image of God of up and down provides no foundation for us to build on. Um, French uh, mathematician and theologian Blaise Pascal, he said this. He said, God made man in his own image and man returned the compliment. God made man in his own image and we returned the compliment by creating a God in ours because this is how we love because this is how we treat our children. This is how we treat other human beings. We have a cutoff point. If you go beyond this, I won't love you anymore. If you go beyond this, I have no time for you. I have no interest in you. I have no passion for you. If you go beyond this, then that's the end of it. And that's how we live as humans. And so what we do in, in that is we translate that. We pour that over into our image of God. We think God's the same. Um, Brennan Manning wrote a book called Abba's Child, and he says this. He says, And so we unwittingly project onto God our own attitudes and feelings about ourselves. We unwittingly project onto God our own attitudes and feelings about ourselves. If I don't like myself right now, then God doesn't like me. If I can't accept myself right now, then God can't accept me. If I hate myself right now, I'm angry at myself, then God must hate me and must be angry. On the flip side, if I feel good about myself right now, then God must feel good about me. That's not the basis of our faith. How we feel is not where a solid foundation is built. God's not moved by your feelings in terms of how he feels about you. He's not looking down at Jackie today going, Jackie, tell me how you feel. Tell me, how should I, how should I feel about you today? He's not asking you the question. He's not giving you the authority to dictate terms on how he's going to feel about you. Many years ago, I was on an um, outreach in Solomon Islands. We'll finish with this. <laughs> Christy, do you want to jump up on the keyboard for me? We're on an outreach to the Solomon Islands. <laughs> and we were going from the main island of, um, of Guadalcanal across to Malaita little island there where we have some contacts and we've been doing some ministry in and out of there for years. And I don't know if you know the history of the Solomon Islands, but um, when I first used to go to the islands back in the early 90s, it was one of the happiest places on planet Earth. I'd never seen a people so full of love and so full of grace and beauty. They, they, they have a strong gospel 
background and foundation. There was a massive uh, move of God in the uh, early 80s. I think it was in the, in the, in the Solomon Islands. <coughs> and God moved wonderfully upon the people. And there was a revival in the islands and, and people loved Jesus. And you, it's a sort of place where you could just go and stand anywhere and talk about Jesus and people would stop where they didn't come because they just want to hear about God. And when I used to go there in and out, it was like that. Then after the Civil War broke out, I remember going back this one time. And we were going from Guadalcanal to Malaita. Now the, the, the Civil War broke out because the Malaitans were hard workers and they would come across to Guadalcanal to work. And the Guadalcanal people eventually got angry about it because the Malaitans were taking all the work. But that was because they worked. And they did whatever. And living and support families and so on. So this tension brewed and eventually it got so bad they were literally running through the streets with machetes. They burnt the town down, Honiara, most of it was burnt down. All of Chinatown was burnt down. When I went there just after the Civil War, it was like I've landed in a completely different country. Not only was the landscape totaled and different, but the people were different. I noticed it straight away. I used to walk downtown, you walk past somebody and hey, and they hey, big smiles. And you'd walk. Now what happened, I noticed every islander would walk past somebody and they would make sure there was distance before they turned away. I asked somebody about it, why are they doing that? And a guy said to me, well, because during the riots, during the Civil War, everybody killed somebody. Everybody killed somebody. And you don't know, but that guy you're walking past could have been his brother or his uncle or his nephew. And there's a payback system. They'll hold on to it and they'll get you. So all of a sudden, this joyful, life-filled people were filled with fear. They were filled with fear. And I remember being on this boat, going from Guadalcanal across to Malaita, a big ferry-type ship. And we were sitting there, and one of the guys on our team that came across with us, he got into a conversation with this boy. And he started to share with him about God. And he started to talk to him about this Father in Heaven that loves us, regardless of performance can't earn your way in you can't earn your way out because God's not going to love you based on what you do or what you think it's his choice and you're not going to change it he wants to love you he chose to love you with an unending love he chose to call you his children who do you think you are to change his mind about that and this guy is listening and listening and he said to this team member (coughs) shared the story with me afterwards he said no God can't love me he said yes he can and the boy looked him in the eyes and began to cry. And he said, no, he can't. He said, I've taken human life. He said, these hands have killed people. God can't love me. God can't love me. We all battle with that. We may not battle with it to that extreme. But you may have some problem in your life some secret struggle that maybe no one even knows about. You can't talk about it. You don't want to bring it out. And it's enough of a seed for the enemy to say to you, see, God doesn't love you. You're too dirty. You've gone too far this time. You know what? You've said sorry too many times, and this time God is just going to turn his back and go, that's enough, I've had a gut for we have this image of God when we feel like God is like that it's so hard for us to fully enter into everything that God has for us 
because we will respond to God based on the image of him that we have. We don't respond to God as he is. We respond to God as we see him. And that keeps us at bay or draws us in or pushes us to the side or limits us or stops us based on that picture. That's what it's about. Just close your eyes for a second this morning. <laughs> if, if what I'm talking today, you know, here's the reality. I don't know where anybody in this room really is with God. I don't, I don't know. I can make assumptions, but you know what they say about assumptions. I just want to ask real quickly, if there's anybody in this room here and you have never surrendered your heart to Jesus, what do I mean by that? I mean this, accepted the fact that you within yourself have nothing to offer God. You within yourself deserve hell, as I do. So we're not coming to church on Sunday and doing what we do to try to earn our way into heaven, to try to get God to love us, to try to impress him. So when we get up there, he'll go, look, I don't really know you, but I did see you at church enough to let you in. It's not going to happen. It's recognizing that Jesus Christ suffered and died on a cross in my place, in your place. He who knew no sin became sin for us. We deserve death and hell. But God extends an olive branch to us and says, you know what? You've got two choices. You can either die, stand before me and try to get in on your own merits, which he tells us well in advance, it ain't going to happen. Or we can surrender ourselves to God. Acknowledge that we have sinned, that we have fallen short, that we haven't lived our life for the glory of God that we haven't done everything we know we should. We can acknowledge that because of that, we deserve punishment. But we can accept that Jesus Christ took that punishment in our place. So that when we leave planet Earth, God will look upon us and see Jesus sacrifice again. Now somebody's paid the price for you. Somebody's paid your price. Somebody's paid your ticket. And we make the choice to stop walking that way and to surrender ourselves to God and say, God, I'm going to spend the rest of my days here on earth living for you so that I can have eternity with you in heaven. If you have never done that in this place this morning, but you want to, I'm going to ask you just to do something. Just, just raise your hand. I'm not going to make a big deal of it. I'm not going to make you come up. I'm not going to embarrass you. If you've never done that, just raise your hand. Okay, second... A lot of people I just want to pray for this morning. I'm not going to ask you to come up, but I am going to ask you to raise your hand. If you're sitting here and what I'm saying to you today tweaks with you, there's something in your heart and you know that you've got that mentality of God, that he's, he's happy with you, then he's sad with you, he's angry, he's upset. He's, you, you can't embrace the concept that God loves you as a father. Though I talked about that passion when you first see that newborn baby, that God has that intensity of love for you. If you struggle with that image of God, if you, you can't seem to comprehend that or grab a hold of that. Now, I just want to pray for you this morning. Just as an act of acknowledgement before God, I'm just going to ask you to do something. See, will you just raise your hand? Just put it up and bring it back down. We'll pray for you this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Well, Father, you saw those hands, God, and Lord, I want to thank you for, uh, God, the faith and the humility of those that raised their hands this morning, God. Lord, we want to pray for a fresh revelation of you as a father. God, for those people, God, I pray that you would begin to open up their eyes to the word of God. You'd begin to open up their eyes, God, to not only see it written, but to begin to feel it, experience it in their own life, in their own relationship with you. That, God, you are 
our wonderful Father, that you look down upon heaven and you look at us and you make the choice to call us your children. And Lord, for the rest of us, God, I pray that God, as much as we understand that, that Father, we would also project that out to the world around us. That God, we would understand that the world around us, the imperfect, frustrating, often disgusting world around us, is loved with a passion, an intense passion by you. And that, Father, we're your agents, we're your hands and your feet. We're the ones that are called to go into that world and to reach people and to show people the unconditional, uncompromised love of a Heavenly Father. Thank you, Lord. And God, I pray this week as we go into the week, God, give each of us an opportunity to be Jesus to somebody that doesn't know you. Everybody prayed. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. We're going to hang around up the front here for a second and uh, we're happy to pray with anybody that would like us to pray with you. Other than that, have a fantastic week. Be Jesus to somebody. Pray for somebody that doesn't know God. And let's shake a world for Jesus in our lifetime. eh? Bless you guys.